Hello and welcome back to Off Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. On today's podcast, we're talking about the 2019 film The Lighthouse. This movie stars Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe as two lighthouse keepers stationed on a remote island off the coast of New England in the 1890s. At least one, if not both, of the characters are driven increasingly mad by the isolation of their post. Inspired by an unfinished Edgar Allan Poe story, this movie is creepy as heck and not for the faint of heart. Today we dig into the history behind the movie. Did the isolation of working at a lighthouse really drive their keepers mad in the past? Why did Canadian and American governments in this period pay for a network of lighthouses when older lighthouses weren't run by federal governments? Who were the people that worked as lighthouse keepers, and what were their lives and jobs really like? To answer all these questions and much more, I'm joined by Kate Bauer. Kate is a PhD candidate in history at the University of Toronto whose research focuses on the environmental, political, social, and technological history of lighthouses. We've got a great interview for you today, so let's get into it. All right, I'd like to welcome to the podcast a friend of mine from the University of Toronto, Kate Bauer. Kate, welcome to the podcast. Hi, everyone, and hi, Louis. Thanks for having me. Kate, could you please introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a bit about your research area? Yeah, so I am a fourth-year PhD candidate at the University of Toronto. I did my BA and my MA at McGill before moving here. My research is broadly on coastal space and lighthouses in Canadian history, and for my own research, I approach lighthouses from a couple of different angles, both from an envirotechnical perspective, so looking at technological change and coastal environments, as well as from a sort of social and cultural perspective, looking at why people are interested in preserving and remembering lighthouses and lighthouse histories today. Very cool. We've known each other for a while because we're in the same cohort at, at U of T. I am from a place that has... Well, there actually is a lighthouse. I was going to say there's no coast. There, <laughs> there is actually a lighthouse in Saskatchewan. But finally, an opportunity to talk about lighthouses with you. So before we get into the, the movie, I'm interested in, in how you got into studying the history of lighthouses and also what, what is it that you find particularly historically interesting or, or significant about them? Yeah, so I would consider myself relatively a landlubber as well, although <laughs> as somebody who grew up only a couple hundred meters from the shore of a great lake, I do have some claim to also having that maritime connection. There are a lot of lighthouses in the Great Lakes, and I grew up with one down the, the street from me. But in terms of my professional and academic interest in lighthouses, it kind of fell in my lap in an unexpected way. When I was an undergrad at McGill, I was desperately searching for a summer research internship position in history of which there were very few offered by McGill Arts Internship Office. And the only one that came up for the summer of 2016 was as a or working as a research intern for a local heritage preservation society in New Brunswick that was responsible for maintaining New Brunswick's second oldest wooden lighthouse. So I went on a road trip, cut across the state of Maine to Campobello Island, New Brunswick, which is a little Canadian exclave just off the coast of Maine. And there I lived for three months researching the local lighthouse, interviewing former lighthouse keepers, and gathering data that the historical society could then use in publications and any sort of public-facing exhibit. Mm. From there, I got back to McGill in the fall and was tasked with writing my research paper about my summer internship and realized there were basically no scholarly sources in Canadian history or, or longer scholarly works about lighthouse history or lighthouses as technological places or even really lighthouses as tourist sites. I was able to pull together some articles from about 10 years ago or a few bits and pieces here and there. But So I had basically encountered a blank space that I wanted to fill with my own research. And the rest, as they say, is history. Very cool. Yeah, so what jumps out to you about lighthouses? What really like hooked you about that topic? So what got me fast, so fascinated, what got me into studying lighthouses as a professional historian was the fact that they are a symbol and a sort of devoted focus for amateur historians all around Canada. Mm -hmm. Every province, maybe save Saskatchewan and Alberta, although I'm not sure I can speak to whether or not the <laughs> Saskatchewan Lighthouse has a, a preservation society or like friends of the Saskatchewan Lighthouse. There, there probably um, is, but... <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. But why there's just such a wide range of volunteers and organizations and groups who are deeply deeply focused on maintaining preserving and sharing lighthouse stories. If you go to any library lighthouse histories, memoirs and 
amateur histories abound. People are so interested in writing about them and learning about them, but they have been relatively relegated in academic histories to something that's sort of quaint and uninteresting to larger stories of settler colonialism or technological change. Mm. And so I'm interested in bringing something that's beloved as a public history or like amateur history focus into larger discussions about the Canadian state and about technological change and the sort of links between federal and local systems. Mm. So I think that there's a lot of resonances with lighthouse history that can speak to other big themes that Canadian historians and environmental historians are interested in. So I'm trying to make a case that they belong alongside, you know, railways and telegraph lines and, and highways as, you know, fundamental technologies in the sort of expansion of settler states, but also to make a case that the coastline and coastal space is worth thinking about in that way as well. As you were talking about that, I, I was wondering if the prairie analog to lighthouses is actually great elevators in terms of how communities remember them. But anyway, that's that's sort of an aside <laughs> from our topic. So today we're talking about the 2019 film, The Lighthouse. And I'd like to summarize the plot for people who maybe haven't seen it or, or haven't seen it in a while and have forgotten it. So this is spoiler territory if you haven't seen the movie and, and don't want to be spoiled. The original inspiration for the movie, which I, it, it then moved away from, but the original inspiration was an unfinished Edgar Allan Poe story, which I think tells you a lot about the vibe of the movie. And it's so this is a, a spooky movie. It's creepy. If you don't want to be scared, don't watch this movie. And it's about these two lighthouse keepers played by Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. And Willem Dafoe, is, he's like this older, more seasoned lighthouse keeper. He's almost like uh, the sea captain from The Simpsons or something, like this stereotypical sailor guy or a captain ahab kind of figure a sort of grizzled seaman with a singular focus in life it's a very familiar sort of sort of character mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and robert pattinson is this sort of newcomer to lighthouse keeping he's come down actually from canada mm -hmm. to keep this lighthouse in new england the movie is set in the 1890s i should add and so they're, they're originally supposed to be stationed there at least i'm I might be mistaken about this. I, I think it might be just Robert Pattinson's character is there for, for four weeks. I think it was three weeks on, three weeks off. That's the usual rotation. Mm. I thought in the movie it was four weeks. Anyway, yeah, so they're there for a few weeks. Yeah. The older guy is not really doing a lot of the work. He's spending all his time up at the top of the lighthouse. And otherwise, he's like drinking a lot at night and that sort of thing. And Robert Pattinson's character is kind of like doing all the hard labor and stuff. And eventually he, he kills a seagull, which he was told was bad luck. And things take a turn for the worse after he kills the seagull. I felt like, you know, the first half of the movie, it really just shows the daily tasks of mm -hmm. lighthouse keepers. And then the, the seagull moment is kind of a turning point where mm -hmm. the film starts to blur the line between what is real and what is being experienced in the minds of these two keepers as they encounter essentially a never-ending nor'easter or, or storm that prevents the ship that's supposed to relieve them from landing. And so they end up stuck on the lighthouse with nothing but a keg of liquor and each other and their increasingly sort of paranoid psychoses. Yes. Being stuck, isolated on this island, which was already taking a toll on certainly Robert Pattinson's character's mental health. We can't really tell, I think, about Willem Dafoe's character, but he's not doing well. And then during the storm, they're stuck there even longer. And he sort of like lets slip all of the stuff that he was, you know, he was kind of strict with himself about like not drinking and stuff. And then he's just drinking on the job all the time. And it eventually comes out that Robert Pattinson's character in his previous job had let one of his co-workers die. It, it's not quite clear that he like murdered him, but certainly didn't help him when he needed help. Mm -hmm. And it's increasingly clear that Robert Pattinson's character is not perceiving reality correctly. He's somehow mm -hmm. gone mad or something. And much of the rest of the movie revolves around not really understanding what is actually happening in reality. <laughs> because you're kind of being shown things from Robert Pattinson's character's mm -hmm. perspective, is what is being shown on screen real? Or sometimes Willem Dafoe's character will say like, oh, we haven't been here that long. It's only been a couple of days. And 
how long has it been? We don't actually know. Maybe Willem Dafoe's character is lying, but maybe Robert Pattinson's character is not perceiving time correctly. This is very spoilery for the end of the movie, <laughs> but eventually... So these characters have this very complex relationship where sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're enemies, and eventually Robert Pattinson's character sort of snaps and murders Willem Dafoe's character, partly because he's angry that Willem Dafoe's character has not let him go to the top of the lighthouse mm-hmm. and see what's up there. So he goes up there after he murders him to go see what's what's going on up there, and something weird happens. It's not that clear. Yeah, that's kind of toward the end of the movie. Toward the basically at the end of it, it's not that clear to what extent the events of the movie were real and to what extent they were sort of manifestations of Robert Pattinson's character's guilt about letting this previous guy die. Mm-hmm. So pretty creepy, pretty grim. Yeah, it was a it was a weird film for those who maybe haven't seen it or don't intend to see it. It was made weirder by the fact that it was filmed in a 3-4 aspect ratio, so it was much hmm. less widescreen than we're used to watching films, and it was also filmed in black and white. Yeah. And so it really feels like it was filmed, you know, even though there were no no movie cameras in the 1890s, it almost has that documentary kind of quality in terms of just how the footage looks. But really, the filmmaking is quite eerie. There's a lot of these, like, punchy outside shots of just the lighthouse, and then these, like, shots of the character's eyes and strange scenes. It's a very unsettling, unsettling film in which, at least when I was watching it, you know, the environment plays a big role, the storm, the wet rocks, and then everything, the whole plot happens within the lighthouse keeper's house and tower. So... Mm -hmm. That gives you a sense maybe of the setting of the film and and how, you know, the filmmakers were able to make it seem very creepy with such a kind of like limited color color story as well as a setting. But sometimes the best movies are like that. Yeah, I thought it was a very well-made movie. It was an interesting one to watch. Stepping a little bit away from the plot of the movie now and getting into the history of lighthouses, these characters work for the United States Lighthouse Establishment. And I'm curious to ask you, and so your research focuses more on Canadian history, mm-hmm. but I wanted to ask you, why did governments like the Canadian government, the United States government, decide to maintain and pay for a network of lighthouses? Considering that, you know, many lighthouses in North America are much older than, say, like the Canadian government. Mm-hmm. When did governments decide to take on lighthouses as a project and why at that time? Mm-hmm. So this is a great question, and it gets at a couple of different interconnected debates in lighthouse history. There are a couple of us who are lighthouse historians, I think, that that would self-style that way, that have something to say on the matter. So as you said, I do speak mostly from my expertise on the Canadian system, but the history of lighthouses in North America is relatively consistent. So some of the things I have to say definitely apply to both sides of the border. So in terms of broader lighthouse history, the first lighthouses, like if we think back to, you know, the Lighthouse of Alexandria or the Colossus of Rhodes, which which also uh, served as a lighthouse, their initial use was as harbor markers. So they were beacons that would indicate the entrances to harbors for vessels faring along the coastline. And in the age of sail, most seagoing vessels were piloted by local mariners who knew waterways well, and very little ship traffic in coastal waters happened at night. It was mostly in the day Mm. just for the sake of making navigation easier. So starting at the the very end of the 18th and early 19th century, transoceanic traffic started to increase. Larger vessels with more people and more goods on them started to ply coastal waters. And then the introduction of the steamship in the first half of the 19th century really signaled a different way that ships were using coastal waters. Lighthouse historians call this shift in navigational technologies a shift from beckoning to warning lights. So Hmm. as vessels got bigger and faster and the demand for timeliness necessitated travel at night, all of a sudden bits of coastline or low-lying islands that could be seen in the daytime became hazards to ships traveling at night. And so the remote coastal warning light emerged as a sort of central navigational technology. So previous to this, most harbor lights were maintained by a harbor master who, you know, there was a light at the end of the pier or somebody in town maintained a lighthouse on a headland near the harbor. But lighthouses like the one we see in the film that are on isolated islands, or especially in the Canadian context along, for example, the northern shore of the Gulf of St. Lawrence or Anticosti Island, places that were really sparsely inhabited, it became a lot harder and a lot costlier for the, for the construction and maintenance of lighthouses. 
So I would get into it, but I, I think it's probably a little bit more boring than the other side of it. There is a bit of a protracted debate in economic history about whether or not lighthouses could ever have been or could ever be provided as a private service. So whether or not private citizens could could viably maintain a lighthouse as you know an, an enterprise, an individual business. But lighthouses are unique because they're non-exclusive. Like their services, you can't keep track of all the people who look at the light, right? So the keeper right. can't then levy individual fees and thereby make money from their services as a lighthouse keeper. And so it sort of started naturally to fall under the purview of governments and, and central states, whether they were colonial governments in British North America, or in the case of, of UK, the sort of harbor organizations that were responsible for insurance and for sick and injured seamen, they started to say, well, we'll take this over too, because it kind of makes sense if we're protecting mariners' lives. And it's costly to build them a centralized organization might be the only way to really do it. Mm -hmm. However, prominent lighthouse historian Teresa Levitt has argued that it was the increasing cost of lighthouse technology rather than the fact that they weren't viable individual enterprises that led to the political and institutional changes at the state level that created the lighthouse system. So the expensive Fresnel lens that we see in the movie, the increasing cost of fog alarm technology, all these things made it so that really only large centralized states could afford to, to build and maintain them. Hmm. So in the United States, federalizing the small number of lighthouses that existed prior to American independence, I think there were about a dozen, was one of the first acts actually of the young republic because a couple of the, the aspects of their, their jurisdiction was the regulation of commerce and the protection of public safety. Yeah, this really stuck out to me when I was doing a little bit of background research for the podcast was that this is one of the first things that the U.S. government does when it's created. And like the U.S. government in the first few decades does not do much. Like it sort of does this and like a postal service mm-hmm. and the military. Mm-hmm. Even the military is it has a lot of local state yeah. aspects to it. It's, so that stuck out to me as something significant that like this is one of the first priorities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's like I said, it's a both a fiscal and a sort of technological imperative that they become national systems, mm-hmm. especially as sort of interstate commerce and transoceanic commerce is, is really the kind of crux of, of both the American and the British North American economies. And so in Canada, the story is a little bit different because Confederation comes about 100 years later at a time where the individual colonies, so New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI a little bit, but a little bit less, Upper and Lower Canada each have separate lighthouse institutions and systems. So New Brunswick and Nova Scotia levy a fee on ships coming into harbors that they just directly kind of a lot for lighthouse construction and maintenance. Hmm. Lower Canada or Quebec had modeled their system very closely after the the UK system where the harbor institutions that kind of manage all the aspects of seafaring and 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 mariners issues in the ports of Montreal and Quebec also maintained the lighthouses in the the areas around each port. They would just take fees from the general harbor fees to to pay for lighthouses and Upper Canada which built and maintained lighthouses in the Great Lakes they funded all the lighthouses from the general treasury. So from like just general taxation, there was no ship fees. Uh, so at Confederation, there was a debate about, okay, which of these systems do we adopt? Because all of a sudden we have tons of inland lighthouses. We have tons of coastal lighthouses. How do we kind of like bring this all under one umbrella? And ultimately it was decided that the upper Canadian system would be the one chosen. So lighthouses were funded from just the general revenues of the Dominion. And they would be lumped into fisheries management, the regulation of pilotage, the regulation of ship classification, all under one umbrella of the Department of Marine and Fisheries. Hmm. I hadn't even thought about how there could be all these like systems previously that, <laughs> that they'd have to pick one eventually. <laughs> hmm. So you've talked a little bit about how the change over time aspect to this, <laughs> but I want to focus in on it a little. The movie is set during the 1890s. And I'm curious how lighthouse keeping and this network of lighthouses maintained by governments changed over time and how it stayed the same. So had the movie been set in 1800 instead of 1890 or like 1950 or something, how would we think the movie might look different? Yeah, so I think the 1890s and the turn of the 20th century were kind of like the golden age of light keeping. It's no surprise it was set at this time. This is the the period, I think, that 
the general public and kind of amateur lighthouse historians are the most interested in because it has a lot of the kind of recognizable features of the like symbolic mythical lighthouse keeper, if that makes sense. And so really this was a period where the technology for projecting light and sound was really um, changing at a rapid pace. Scientists and the government's own workshops and contracted factories were working hard to improve on technological aids to navigation. There was a real interest on behalf of the public for the government to intervene. Every time there was a big shipwreck or a loss of life at sea, there was outcry from publics that were petitioning the government, you need to build a lighthouse here, you need to build a lighthouse here. And so the systems were expanding rapidly, new lighthouses were being constructed. But the monotony of the job really didn't change as the sort of technology changed. So hmm. in the in the 1890s, you see the Fresnel lenses, which is this big refracted light lens that are all built from this one workshop in France. Hmm. Those are getting installed on coastlines all across North America. Foghorns have emerged as a viable way to signal ships in the fog, but most of them are very fuel intensive to actually create the pressure needed to make the sound. And so hmm. the technology is getting bigger and better and louder and faster and brighter, which helps the mariner. But the actual tasks that are required by the lighthouse keeper to keep up with this changing technology, their labor is still very much the same as it had been, you know, 50 years earlier. It's just more of it. It's just, it's just more work. Interesting. Yeah, that was a big change. And then the real, the real big switch happens, a big change happens just after World War II, where a lot of lighthouses start to become electrified. And so the job of the lighthouse keeper by the Second World War is changing from manual labor of lighting, lighting kerosene lamps and stoking coal to just turning switches on and off that turn the light and the foghorn on and off. So really the 1890s and like the turn of the 20th century are the, the key period where the technology is impressive, but the labor is very... It's drudgery. <laughs> right, right, right. And we definitely get that impression from the movie, mm -hmm. I think. I, w I was going to ask you specifically about the work in the movie, mm -hmm. that, uh, sort of focusing on the lighthouse keepers themselves rather than the bigger picture system. Mm -hmm. The movie suggests that, yeah, the, the work is laborious, drudgery, a lot of hauling stuff around, a lot of repainting mm -hmm. the lighthouse itself. That sort of stuff is that all pretty accurate? Would you say it sounds like it sounds like it is? Yeah, I was really impressed with this. The constant maintenance of the towers was key because of their location on exposed coastal headlands. Just by nature of the salt and the weather, they were more susceptible to damage, which if a damaged tower could lead to a damaged light, which could lead to a shipwreck. And so there was this constant focus on maintenance. But not only, not only that, on yearly inspections of lighthouses, which happened every year, the commissioners or the inspector would also often have space to remark on the cleanliness of the station. And the best lighthouses were well-kept domestic spaces as well, which, which hmm. at this time really seemed to be a reflection on like the, the capabilities of the keepers. Mm -hmm. So what's important to remember, though, is this, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, the lighthouse in this film, the isolated, rocky, barren island lighthouse is actually more of an anomaly to lighthouse keeping than I think people might imagine. Hmm. But yeah, the, the depiction of the work at a station of that sort, I thought was just spot on. Interesting. Also, I'm imagining the inspector's report at the end of this movie coming to this lighthouse that's been <laughs> you know, totally destroyed, basically. Yeah. 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 So speaking of that isolation, this is one of the major themes in the film, is that the isolation experienced by the lighthouse keepers yeah. is a huge drain on their mental health. And I'm curious how this matches up with the historical reality. Mm -hmm. Was this level of isolation typical? And if so, I mean, it's hard to get at how people's mental health was historically, but do you have any impression that this was a major weight on lighthouse keepers? Yeah, so you might be surprised. I have some some archival evidence for mm. the weight of, of this job on on people and on men in, in the Canadian context. So I'm speaking mostly from my research in, in Canada. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I do think isolation was a really big issue for the small number of keepers that worked at these sort of isolated postings. This was not a typical posting in Canada. Most lighthouses were located on mainland. While they could be remote, it, it was possible and, and usually 
they were built with the intention of the keeper being able to leave the station if need be for supplies or in the case of an emergency. Okay. But there are um, a number of lighthouses in Canada in the Canadian system that resemble the the one from the film. The ones that come to mind are Machias Seal Island in the Gulf of Maine, as well as Gannett Rock, which is even even rockier and and um, located on an even smaller island than the one in the film. So. There would be no need for a wheelbarrow to carry coal around because it's literally just a lighthouse and a fog alarm on a little bit of rock sticking out of the, the water. Wow. So in those circumstances, um, much like we saw in the film, there were shift like shift work. So keepers and their assistants would go three weeks on, three or four weeks on, three or four weeks off because of the way that that kind of posting took a toll on your on your sanity and I think in your capacity to do the job well. The one that comes to mind really is the best comparison, and it's not just because of the seagulls, is this uh, station called Bird Rocks, which is in the Magdalene Islands in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. It's called Bird Rocks because it's basically just a huge cliff that sticks out of the middle of the gulf covered in bird poop because it's just the nesting place of like huge populations of seabirds mm-hmm. a keeper and an assistant were stationed there but they actually had to stay the entire year because it was so difficult to get supplies on and off it was essentially like cliffs rising out of the water and so ships could only land and send supplies up the like elevator funicular once like when weather when the weather and the tides were just perfect so those keepers ended up being really isolated for longer periods of time and I came across an order in council from 1875 and I'm going to read it out because I just think it really encapsulates this isolation well Mm -hmm. so it's uh, May 3rd 1875 Mr. George Preston who held the position of keeper of the lighthouse on Bird Rocks Magdalen Islands the most lonely and desolate light station in the dominion where the keeper is obliged to stay through the winter was obliged after remaining on the rock for 14 months straight to give up the situation on account of ill health and mental infirmity and now lies very ill and is not expected to recover so that gives you a sense of that you know this this was in in the archive in the the records of the department of marine that lighthouse keepers did have to be relieved of their job for reasons of of mental infirmity whatever that sort of translates to today Wow, that's that's a really cool example that you found. I mean, not cool in the sense that it's kind of sad, but I think pretty telling. So it was typical then for, for there to be only two light, lighthouse keepers stationed at a time? Yeah, so like I said, there's a, a distinction between this kind of station and the regular, the more much more typical uh, lighthouse station. So usually, yes, it was a lighthouse keeper and their assistant if there was a fog apparatus, whether it was a fog bell or a cannon, or then in later years, the ones we see in the 1890s, a steam-powered fog alarm. If there was more than one thing to do, there was always an, a keeper and an assistant, and most of the isolated stations would never have one person out there was always two. Mm-hmm. However, some of the islands that were a little bit less intensely isolated, but still quite sequestered from a community, oftentimes keepers actually had their family with them mm-hmm. rather than an assistant. In fact, this is what differentiates the Canadian system from the American system, where the American system was much more kind of militarized or regulated with training and uniforms and this much more kind of regimented hiring and, and, and practice of lighthouse keeping in Canada was much more informal. And the Department of Marine and Fisheries in the 1880s actually I have, have, have material that shows that they were more interested in hiring keepers who were married with many children hmm. because they could rely on the, the unpaid labor of, of wives and children to kind of help keep the station. Right. Um, but also there was a sense that having a wife around was key to kind of like morality and the kind of maintenance of a good domestic space and would, would lead to a better maintained lighthouse. That's really interesting. And we do get the sense in the movie that it's a sort of like quasi-naval mm-hmm. like, a, like a militaristic setup, yeah. right? Where they definitely have the uniforms, they have this officer subordinate relationship yeah so i i think that that's an interesting comparison so this is hard to give a blanket answer to but would you say lighthouse keeping was a quote-unquote good job in this period you know we see in the movie robert pattinson's character is talking about why he decided to become a lighthouse keeper and one of the reasons he identifies is that he heard that not only is the pay good but the pay was better the more isolated the post one was working is this accurate? Do you think lighthouse keeping was like a desirable job or was it just kind of like a job people did? That I think is harder to answer than the, the question about pay and remoteness. If you want to look at the ease with which the Department of Marine and Fisheries was able to find replacements when they came up, I would say people did want to work as as lighthouse keepers. Of course, 
the job of a lighthouse keeper at a lighthouse uh, near a harbor or at a headland of a you know a bustling town was much easier to say yes to than I think a posting of the sort of the one we see in the movie. So there were there were lots of lighthouse keepers. There were people who continued lighthouse keeping for thirty years. There were people whose sons and grandsons continued in the family tradition. So. You know, whether or not it was something that they fell into by virtue of proximity or something that they genuinely wanted to do, it seemed that people who got into it stayed in it. Hmm. And so you can kind of extrapolate from that. Yeah, maybe it was a good job, or at least it was a job that let people live the lives that they wanted to live. Mm-hmm. But if you want to answer, if you want me to answer the question about, you know, isolation and pay and Robert Pattinson's character says, you know, this is a good job, I can save money and and put it away for later. That is true. I would say that as lighthouse keepers, often your supplies, your food, and your housing were provided by the station itself. And so most people's salaries went just towards savings or towards any sort of like expenses, like, you know, sending kids to school or buying new clothes or things like that. But in general, there were jobs that, that people could save a good amount of money in. In the Canadian system, lighthouse keepers who lived at isolated stations were indeed paid more on account of their isolation. This is found throughout all of the orders and council from the sort of 1870s to the 1920s that I've looked at. However, it was not on account of the job necessarily being harder, but it was on account of the keeper's inability to engage in any other employment. And that's a direct quote. So for keepers of shore or harbor lights or light stations that didn't need to be maintained through the winter, such as those on the Great Lakes that would freeze up. It was really common for lighthouse keepers to have alternative income sources. So they were like small scale farmers or they would log in the, the area around the lighthouse or often more often than not, they were fishermen. Mm-hmm. And so this was actually encouraged by the Department of Marine and Fisheries in Canada because it ensured lower maintenance costs. They could basically get away with paying lighthouse keepers less because they could rely on their external income as well as some money from the government and then they could just keep the light in general. Of course, a lot of this is hinged also on, like I said, unpaid labor of wives and children. Yeah. And I have records of lighthouse keepers who, you know, in addition to keeping a light, were also the postmaster of the town. One keeper was also... <laughs> found to be running the local bakery in town. Although in that circumstance, specifically the department of Marine ended up reprimanding him because he spent more of his time at the bakery and left his elderly mother to run <laughs> oh, no. the lighthouse in his absence. <laughs> oh, that's a good, that's a good story. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, well, I can't speak to the, the details on the U S I do know because of that, the pay scale for lighthouse keepers, you know, the more isolated, the more money you made, but in general, it was actually quite haphazardly assigned So it wasn't like, okay, this class of station, you make this much money, this class of station, you make this much money. It was basically just like they threw a dartboard at the wall, whatever the the first lighthouse keeper agreed to. And then any increases to the salary were the responsibility of the individual lighthouse keeper to petition the the government for. Hmm. So relatively at this time in Canada, somebody working on a station like the one we see in the film, The Lighthouse, would be making between $600 to $1,000 a year, which is about on par with what we see in in the film. They say about $1,000. However, keepers at shore stations or smaller stations or places where alternative income is possible, anywhere from like $100 to $500, $600. And then harbor and smaller lights could be just like $50 to $100 a year. Hmm. There's actually a case in New Brunswick where a guy's house just like is a little bit taller than the others in town. And he puts a light at the top of it and the government just gives him <laughs> 60 bucks a year to keep it lit. Oh, nice. So yeah, there's a really big range <laughs> of like how intensive the job was. <laughs> right. I like that story at the end. That, that's like, it's like the 19th century version of putting solar panels on your roof and then the electric company <laughs> pays you instead. Yeah. yeah. You just happen to have a taller little a taller little bit. And I want to bring up one other anecdote I thought was actually cool. Mm -hmm. There are cases also where keeper salaries were reduced over time Mm -hmm. if the job got easier. So I I have another order in council from from 1891, which is like spot on from when this movie takes place. Mm -hmm. The keeper of the light at Newcastle, New Brunswick is currently paid a salary of $150 per annum. The undersigned has the honor to recommend that in view of the many advantages connected with the position of this light, not enjoyed by others such as cheap fuel and the keeper living at home close by the salary of mr mary be reduced from 150 to 100 dollars per annum so it was sort of judged to be too easy of a of a job and so his his pay was docked oh that's rough Mm -hmm. (laughs) can you imagine if parliament was like hey you make a third less money this year (laughs) that's that's rough (laughs) just gotta do more fishing (laughs) yeah exactly 
I don't know how this compares to the 1890s, mm-hmm. but I do know from some of what I've read around the mid 19th century in the United States, around 1860, $300 a year was considered a pretty good working class wage. Mm-hmm. Quote unquote skilled workers would make like maybe $300 a year. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what inflation was like across those 30 years, but that might give some yeah. some perspective on, on how much money they were making here. Another perk of the job, getting to eat lobster every night made by, <laughs> by Willem Dafoe. My favorite scene in the movie is the, the weird scene where they're arguing about Willem Dafoe's lobster. And he's like, tell me you're like my lobster. <laughs> yeah, I... I would imagine the diet gets rel- like relatively monotonous. I know that yeah. keepers looked forward to the delivery of like canned meat and vegetables because it it broke up the the reliance on shellfish and fish. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a long history, of, or I'm, I'm sure people know about the long history of lobsters going from kind of like the working class poorest seafood to now like today's sort of delicacy, which I I just love to. <laughs> to think about I do I mean I do have an anecdote that can maybe explain like so so when I was living on Campobello Island mm-hmm. my host the, the lady whose house I was living in she explained to me that on Campobello a more, majority of the men are employed in lobster fishing and she said you could tell at school which who were the, the richer kids and who were the poorer kids because the rich kids had bologna sandwiches and the poor kids had lobster sandwiches Oh, wow. Because it was essentially, you know, if dad could bring home a lobster or two at the end of his shift on the fishing boat, the family would just eat that as opposed to going to the grocery store and buying the much more expensive, you know, imported food and canned goods. Oh, wait, bologna. So bologna was the fancy one. Mm-hmm. Okay, I had that back. I thought you were yeah. saying, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Back to the movie. Yeah. I'm interested in the people who became lighthouse keepers. So in the movie, we have these two working class white men. Is this typically who would take the job? Especially because I think sometimes government posts at this time were the government would keep them fairly exclusive. They, mm-hmm. they were not very, like, inclusive hirers. Yes. And no. so, so was late housekeeping in this period a vocation for working class white men? Or do you see examples of lighthouse keepers of other races, genders, and classes? I thought it was pretty spot on mm-hmm. in my own work. I don't see much variety in terms of that sort of class or race background of lighthouse keepers. Mm-hmm. Willem Dafoe, his character, I think, was either Scottish or Irish. And Robert Pattinson, you could tell he had a pretty thick Boston accent. So they were the sort of typical quintessential New England mariners. I would say that falls pretty in line with who was doing lighthouse keeping in Canada as well. Most of the lighthouse keepers hired by the Canadian government to do the work were usually local. So were local white men, fishermen, former seamen sometimes, mm. or something of a kind of like similar, a similar sort. Mm. And in fact, what's different often in the Canadian context than the American context is because lighthouse keeping was much less sort of centrally regulated and regimented as, as we see in the film. Oftentimes lighthouse keeping was quite dynastic. So when mm. a father could no longer keep the post or if he drowned or, or passed away, usually the son would just take over and the, the department would do nothing other than just mark in their, their pay books or record books that the son, the son just took over. So yeah. it was pretty dynastic and people who got it, families that got into lighthouse keeping tended to stay in it. In terms of women doing lighthouse keeping work, as, I, as I've said before, wives were expected to learn how to help take care of, of the light station and in, their, in the case of their husband's absence or infirmity, many were very capable lighthouse keepers. And as early as the 1870s, there are, case, there are instances where upon the death of their husband, a woman is hired as the permanent keeper of a lighthouse station. There's cases in hmm. Lake Ontario, British Columbia upon their entry into Confederation and in Quebec and Nova Scotia, where the department hires women who are basically trained as the wives of lighthouse keepers. And then they stay on usually with the help of an older son. Hmm. So that's the only variety in terms of the, the background, although those stories are more anomalous than they are representative of any sort of like diversity in, in who did lighthouse keeping. Interesting. In terms of 
people from different ethnic or racial backgrounds. There's very little evidence for keepers on the East Coast specifically who fit this description. Although I do know there were a number of keepers on the Great Lakes who were Métis, descended from fur traders and indigenous wives and women. The case that comes to mind is Charles McKay, who was the keeper at Battle Island on Lake Superior from 1877 to 1913. His son took over until 1945, and then his nephew's cousin was the keeper until the 60s, and then he was the last keeper. So for, you know, for 80 years, there was one Métis family in Lake Superior. But I have a colleague, Jesse Robertson, at the University of Victoria, who's written more and can kind of speak to that in more detail. In the 20th century, there were also a number of indigenous light keepers on Vancouver Island. Mm -hmm. On the west coast of Vancouver Island, it's quite remote and there were very little sort of settler settlements. And so oftentimes people from uh, nearby reserves or indigenous nations would would be hired as lighthouse keepers. And they would continue to sort of live on their land and fish, but then also tend the light. And then I do know in the American context, from a little bit of research I've done, there were a couple of African-American keepers, but not enough to make a case that this was a diverse profession by, you know, by any means. Right. Was this a patronage job to some degree? Like, I know a lot of jobs in this period, although this is actually roughly the period in which patronage, Mm -hmm. at least in the American context, I think also the Canadian context, there are attempts to reform it and, and remove it from government work, but from much of the 19th century, you know, a lot of the types of jobs that governments hire for are political allies of whoever's in power. And, you know, I see this sometimes in my work in mid 19th century U.S. You'll see people write to elected officials after the elected official wins an election. And they're like, hey, I'm a big supporter of yours. I helped you win the election in such and such town. Can you give me a job as the postmaster of the town? Or Mm -hmm. another big one is the, it's not harbor master. I'm forgetting the term, but they like manage revenue at a port. Mm. Is this also true of lighthouse keeping? I think because of the nature of the system in Canada, my initial reaction is a little bit less perhaps than in an American case. Although I I don't think I have the like source material research kind of background to speak to whether or not it was kind of happening all over Canada. I wouldn't be surprised, especially in, you know, desirable positions that were like these quote unquote easier jobs or the more well-paid ones. But in general, I think the Canadian Department of Marine and Fisheries hired for proximity and for simplicity. And so it was essentially a matter of who's the first person that can get there and do the best job. I do know that there are cases where lighthouse keepers are actually removed from their job for being too politically partisan. Oh, interesting. So it could be that the the reverse was the case. There are, I have evidence from a lighthouse keeper near Kingston in the 1870s who is ousted from his job for like meddling in local elections or for being too, too partisan. So I think the position was seen as something that was tied more to like the larger public good or to the kind of safety of public interest. And it wasn't necessarily like a dignified job by any means. It was a very much just like a laborious kind of working class job that was associated with kind of rough and tumble coastal living. So speaking specifically to the Canadian context, I would say probably less patronage than maybe the American case. And in fact, cases, you know, cases where it's, it's desirable or that it's, it's forced upon the lighthouse keeper to be politically neutral. Right. That's interesting. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a really interesting example from, from Kingston. Mm-hmm. Also about the people who were lighthouse keepers, thinking about the film and the relationship between the two main characters, basically the two only characters mm-hmm. almost, they have this complex relationship in the film where sometimes they hate each other. And obviously, as I mentioned earlier, Robert Pattinson's character eventually ends up killing Willem Dafoe's character. But sometimes they're really like each other and at some points they're sexually attracted to one another Mm -hmm. there's a scene where they almost kiss there's a couple other scenes that have some sexual tension in them Mm -hmm. and i'm curious do you know of any same gender lighthouse keepers who historically became involved in romantic or sexual relationships this was a question i was so interested in when you sent it along because it's something that i've wondered about as well I think at this point, you know, as a historian, we can only kind of use a lot of averages to assume maybe, but I don't have any, I don't have any like material proof for this. It's certainly something that wouldn't show up in any of the sort of materials that I, I have used for my research. 
inspection reports, any kind of orders about firing or hiring lighthouse keepers, or even the logs kept by lighthouse keepers, which were government property. Right. So the, the journals kept by lighthouse keepers wouldn't reveal anything of, of a personal nature because they were used by the the government to you know allot supplies for the next year because it would be more like keeping track of how much coal I used rather than how I felt about my you know assistant keeper. Sure. So. I, I can't speak to, you know, a historically sort of supported conclusion about that. But, you know, there's probably a reason why the Canadian government was interested in hiring married men, hmm. because there was, a, I think, a, a fear, perhaps, that, you know, isolation would lead to the desire for companionship that fell outside of the expected norms of the time. So, you know, we can only we can only imagine. Right. Interesting. I always ask my guests this question about whatever mm-hmm. the item is for the week. From a historian's perspective, what was your favorite thing about this movie, about the lighthouse? And the flip side of that question is, if you were the director of the movie and you were empowered to change one thing about its representation of history, what would you like to change and why? What I found fascinating about this film and what puts it in contrast with other movies or books that are set at lighthouses is it's the character's relationship with the station itself and the technology itself. Mm. That's like kind of one of the fundamental, yeah, like sources of tension and conflict. Usually in films, lighthouses are depicted as like a backdrop, a romantic backdrop to some other kind of intrigue happening in the foreground, some kind of romance Mm. or like tension or conflict or whatever. And so as a historian interested in, in, in the kind of human side of a technological history and a technological system, I thought this was really fascinating and really allows for the viewer to kind of get into that way of thinking that, you know, machines and technology and environments can actually like actually do play a role in and and are things with which, you know, people had relationships and and, you know, formed not necessarily emotional attachments to, but were like fundamental parts of people's lives. So I really liked that. The other thing that I, I thought was, you know, historically accurate or, or good about this film is the the nature of the work. So going back to what I spoke about earlier, how technological change did not always factor in the human labor required. So like the enormous rotating Fresnel lens, the weight of the kerosene required to keep the light lit, the fog machines that guzzled coal and were required to be restocked in the worst weather. Those are factors of lighthouse keeping that get left out of these like romantic depictions often. It's usually like a you know lighthouse keeper like standing atop a tower staring out at the sea. And so to kind of get into the, the drudgery, I thought was, yeah, a really effective tool for telling the story kind of how it was. Mm-hmm. In terms of changing anything about the film, I'm not a filmmaker and I just am... I am like so easily swayed and and convinced by things I see on screen, and so I enjoyed pretty much pretty much all of it. I know that's not an interesting answer, but <laughs> the story that got told was one that I kind of sat back at the end and got, well, that was awesome. They did a great job. So highly recommend watching. It gets the thumbs up from from a lighthouse historian. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. Yeah. No, I really like this movie too. I. You know, obviously I'm not a lighthouse historian, but I am a historian of the 19th century U.S. Mm -hmm. And I thought the depiction of the 19th century U.S. in this movie was pretty good. Yeah. I thought it was a thoughtful take on a historical setting. Like sometimes you see movies where they're just sort of like, ah, it'll be fun if we make the setting old. Yeah. And then the attention to the history is kind of poor. And then sometimes you see movies where... The attention to history for for the filmmakers means, like, we got the costumes right. Yes. But I thought this film was both faithful to the history in terms of the physical appearance of things, but also how the characters related to one another. Yeah. That's really what a lot of historians are more so looking for, is the deeper relationships between people. Mm -hmm. It's more interesting than, you know, did they have the right number of buttons on their uniform? Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was very well done. I also just thought, outside of a historian's perspective, it's a very cool movie if you mm-hmm. if you like scary movies this is a very interesting and well-made movie i thought it was very creepy and enjoyable so mm-hmm. so i would definitely recommend people check it out as well mm-hmm. anything else about this film you wanted to mention or about the history of lighthouses you wanted to mention that we didn't get to no i'm glad that uh i'm glad that i had a, a chance to chat about it with you today lewis i think you know like i said one of the the myths that i'm trying to bust with my work is that these were kind of these like, isolated romantic places you know mm-hmm. they were in fact places where people worked but they were also parts of larger systems and 
yeah, it's fun to be able to kind of put them into these like larger, larger discussions. And this film does a good job of, of, of getting at some of the things that I'm trying to say, hey, this is actually important. So, so the movie is great in that regard. And also, you know, I read a review. One of the reviews I read was that this must have been a, an emotionally exhausting performance for both mm. Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe because they really do get lost in these characters. I, I haven't seen method acting of the sort in, in a long time. So kudos to the two of them for carrying this film. <laughs> yeah, I was really impressed. I think this was... At the time that I watched this, there were like a lot of memes going around about the original Spider-Man movie. Yes. And so I, I was thinking of Willem Dafoe as the Green Goblin. Yeah. And, yeah. and then, then I saw this and I'm like, oh, wow, this is yeah. this is so good. And like Robert Pattinson, I'm not a big film buff. Mm-hmm. So when I think of Robert Pattinson, I think of the Twilight movies, yes. which I know he's I know he's done more serious films since then. But that's what I think of. And then seeing this and I was like oh wow this is really good so I was very impressed yeah the acting was very good as well I thought Mm -hmm. both of the characters were really interesting and the relationship between them was it it was a good story I definitely I definitely I feel like this is in terms of the movies that I've talked about on the podcast this is probably like the best one just for like a viewer experience Amazing. It also gave me the chance to finally watch it because every time I mention what I study, people are like, oh, have you seen the movie The Lighthouse? And I actually hadn't seen it until mm. we um, we decided to do, the, to do this. So I'm grateful to finally have that in my back pocket now. So when I get accosted with the question, I at least have like a, a coherent answer. There you go. Yeah, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you said you don't usually like scary movies that much, right? No, and I wouldn't pin this under... A traditional horror genre it doesn't have jump scares or yeah or anything of a sort it just kind of builds a sense of unease yes and sort of an unsettling environment where as the viewer you're unsettled because none of it really makes sense and you're kind of trying to parse out what's real or what's not so as somebody who doesn't like horror movies this was a perfect middle ground <laughs> the horror is from a lot of it is from the first half things seem Almost normal, but not quite normal. And you know, you know, it's going to get worse, Mm -hmm. but you don't know exactly how it's going to get worse. Mm -hmm. And then in the second half, you're sort of questioning like everything that you've seen and whether or not it actually happened or or Mm -hmm. what. So definitely people should check it out if they're interested. Now that we've spoiled the whole movie. (laughs) (laughs) Do you still want to see it? (laughs) Kate, this has been really fun. Thank you so much for talking to me today about the lighthouse and also lighthouses. Do you have any social media pages or other projects you're working on that you'd like to share with the listeners? I am a very, very, very occasional tweeter over at Kate Does History. There's also a series on nichecanada.org on Canadian coastal histories that I wrote a little piece on that is in the works to becoming a larger edited volume. So keep an eye out for anything kind of coastal related. You might see my name. But other than that, nope, just dissertating and doing the thing. Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Lewis. This was really fun. That's all for today's podcast. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Kate for joining me. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I'll include some reading recommendations in the show description. And if you'd like to see some cool historical photos of lighthouses, check out our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review or recommend it to someone you know that you think would like it. That sort of thing genuinely helps me out a great deal. And if you're a fellow historian who'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you have comments that you'd like to send in, feel free to contact me at offcampushistory at gmail.com. Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his Novelty Orchestra, and artwork for the podcast was made by Nefkaria. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more Off Campus History. <laughs> <laughs>